Um, here we are in uh, Psalm 107 today, our last um, perhaps Sunday school of the year. Uh, on the first, you'll find out soon, but we're having a missionary come in, so we're going to have Sunday school hour on the first, but that's going to be um, the, whole, the whole church together. Um, so let's read Psalm 107, not the whole thing. I'm going to read the first verse, and then we're going to jump to the middle of it. Psalm 107 says this, O give thanks to Yahweh, for He is good, for His loving kindness endures forever. Let the redeemed of Yahweh say so, whom He has redeemed from the hand of the adversary. We're talking uh, this fall, we've been talking about blessed assurance. What does it look like to have assurance? And we've answered this question many ways. What does it look like for a young student to have assurance of salvation? We've, we've looked at it from the practical side. What, what does it look like from your side? And what does it look like from a theological side? What is the God that you believe in and trust in? Assurance comes from both, both how we live, how we think about our life, and then also how we think about our God as well. And here we have in this psalm, just the beginning of it, Where does blessed assurance come from? It comes from the knowledge of the loving kindness of God. See that? Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His loving kindness endures. It continues. It keeps going forever. That's where assurance comes from. It comes from the character and the power and the strength and the person of God on our side. His loving kindness endures forever. Now, the challenge is, do you believe that? Do you believe that when it doesn't feel like his loving kindness is enduring forever, right? When when life is is rough, so rough that you're kind of forgetting about the God whose loving kindness endures. Uh, What what about then? Does, Does God's loving kindness continue? Yes, of course it does. But what about when our faith is weak, when our faith is little, when our faith is small? What about that? That's what we're going to talk about today. Um, But to kind of set that up. I want you to just hear this passage from Psalm 107. This is later on in the psalm, and kind of keep this passage in your mind. Turn to Psalm 107, verse uh, 23. Psalm 107, verse 23. Once again, the theme is, look at the loving kindness enduring of God. And here we have this passage of these people in a ship. Those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on many waters... They have seen the works of Yahweh and his wondrous deeds in the deep. He spoke and set up a stormy wind, which raised up the waves of the sea. They went up to the heavens and they went down to the depths. Just real quick. I love that verse. It makes me seasick, right? Doesn't it make you seasick? Right? But notice also the craziness here. God is causing the storm. And how is he causing the storm? By speaking. And he is causing the storm to rise and the waves to go up and the waves to go down. God is causing the storm that, that so shatters the faith of some. Look at verse 26, halfway through. Their soul melted away in the calamity. They struggled and swayed like drunken men. They started thinking wrong thoughts about their world and about their God and about their situation. They were swaying like drunken men. And all their wisdom was swallowed up. They started saying madness, mad things. Then they cried to Yahweh in their trouble. 
and he brought them out of their distress. He caused the storm to stand still so that its waves were hushed. Then they were glad because they were quiet. So he led them to their desired haven. Let them give thanks to Yahweh for his loving kindness and for his wondrous deeds to the sons of men. Let them exalt him also in the assembly of the people and praise him at the seat of the elders. Terrific, terrific psalm there. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for your loving kindness, which endures forever. Um, Despite how our lives are going up and down and may be surrounded by frightening waves, your loving kindness endures forever. And I pray that you'd give us minds to understand these truths and hearts to believe these things, even when we do not see you in front of us doing things, that we would still have a faith and a view of you in all things, that your loving kindness endures forever. And Lord, also I pray that you would also uh, create in us a, a sense of our sinkingness, and when we sink in our sin and in our doubt and in our despair, that we would be quick to cry out for help to you and seek you while you may be found. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's talk about the theological side of assurance. And, and actually, I don't really want to talk very much from Psalm 107, but I just think it's so cool. I think it's so cool because it perfectly, uh, perfectly restates the passage we're going to be in today. Everything we just read there, just keep in mind as you turn over to Matthew, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 14 and verse 22. Keep, keep Psalm 107 in your mind, though. Just think about it in that way. We're going to look at the theological side, again, of assurance. We're kind of coming to the end of our little series here on assurance. I have this, I have this secret other uh, series going on that nobody knows about, but it's been going on the entire time I've been here at Grace Bible Church, and it's called, I Want to Preach Every Passage on Storms That There Is in the Bible Series. None of you know about it, but it's my secret series, and so I'm working my way through that as well. We're in Psalm, uh, uh, sorry, Matthew 14, verse 22. We're talking about the theological side of assurance, and the truth of today is that God sometimes sends storms with strength into your life to build your assurance, to show you how great He is and show you how weak you are, and that is how God builds your assurance. The wind is from Him. The waves are waves that He raises. And they are to show you your weakness. And they are to turn you to Him and to cause you to cry out to Him in your weakness. And they are to make Him known to you in all of His beauty and strength and power in every situation of your life so that you can have assurance. Now, we're in Matthew 14, and I'm totally comfortable in being in Matthew's Gospel at the same time Steve is, as I've obviously already shown. Um, And also, it's going to take Steve about five years to get to Matthew 14, so you won't remember anything that I'm about to say. So I'm totally fine with that. Totally fine with that. But just a a, a quick reminder, uh, Matthew is divided into narrative, sermon, kind of chunks of Scripture. You have narrative, and then you have a sermon kind of preaching on all of the big passages of story that Matthew just covered. And there's various ways you could break it down, but I've broken it down before. And right now we're in the middle of a section called the King's Training. The King's Training, this is from Matthew 14 all the way through Matthew 18, and, and a little bit into the beginning of Matthew 19 as well. The King's Training. 
This is after Jesus has been officially kind of formally rejected by the nation of Israel. And you remember in Matthew 13 that the parables start then. He starts speaking to them in mysteries to, to keep information away from those who are stubborn and unbelieving and to also reveal truths of the kingdom to his own disciples. So he is getting away. We see this again and again in Matthew 14. Jesus is withdrawing. Jesus is withdrawing. In Matthew 16, Jesus is withdrawing. That's what's happening in this section. But why is he withdrawing? He's withdrawing because he wants to train his disciples in who he is and who they must be, especially when he is gone. And the basic purpose of all this training is that, right? Your sufficiency, your sufficiency in ministry to do all the things that I'm commanding you to do is found in me. It's found in me. And you have that sufficiency even when I'm gone. You have strength. You have strength from the knowledge of who I am. And even, and even when Jesus is gone, uh, Jesus wants his disciples to know that even when I am not with you, I am still with you in power. And we'll see that today. Um, so that's kind of the, the big picture. Uh, I want to just ask a, uh, a question here. What are the... What are the the, the, the theological truths about Jesus that we find in our passage today. Or you could ask it this way, what in Christ do we find that brings great security to the believer through this passage that we're going to talk about today? I'm just going to give you them all up front. These are the, the truths of Christ that we find um, that are sweet to us and strengthen us in our assurance. We're going to look at the unshifting purposes of Christ, the unceasing prayers of Christ, the unlimited power of Christ, and the unbreaking patience of Christ. Those, those are kind of the, the aspects of Christ's character that you see in a passage like Matthew 14, 22. And that's what we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna kind of reveal. But I'm not going to just kind of go, okay, now let's talk about the patience of Christ. Let's talk about the, the power of Christ. Um, no, I'm not going to do it that way. So we're going to walk through the story, and as these things reveal themselves, I'm going to show them to you. So, so, so those are the things that we're looking for. So whenever I'm saying, hey, notice the patience of Christ here, that's when you want to start writing down things about who Christ is, even in this passage. You'll see there in the heading that this is the, the passage in which Jesus walks on the sea, a very popular story. But I, I think... Uh, for all its familiarity to you, you may not truly understand what's happening there. The more I look at it, the more amazed I am by it. And that's what we'll look at. So let's just look at our story here. <clears throat> just a few random scene titles that I'll just kind of work my way through. First off, I, I want you guys to just see the first kind of episode in this story. And I'm going to title it, The Abrupt Isolation, The Abrupt Isolation. Verse 22 of Matthew 14. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side. Well, he sent the crowds away. And after he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. I think there is an abrupt isolation here if you are reading in Matthew's gospel. If you are perhaps reading Matthew for the first time, and you come to the passage right before this, uh, Jesus feeding the 5,000, you may be tempted to think, hey, seems like things are going pretty well for this whole Jesus movement thing, right? F five thousand men, not including women and children, are being fed and getting really excited about Jesus. And if, and if you're a disciple of Jesus, you're probably also getting really excited about this, right? Remember what the disciples had been doing up to this point. They had been going off two by two, spreading the message of Jesus, 
to everyone that would listen. And now the, the nation of Israel, the, the people of Israel, not necessarily the leaders, but, but the population of Israel was getting really, really excited about Jesus. They were satisfied, verse 20 tells us. They were eager to keep Jesus close to them. And who doesn't want to keep a bread-making machine close to you? But at this point, with all this splashing success, uh, healings, exorcisms, teaching, bigger and bigger crowds, we see that Jesus doesn't handle the success the same way his disciples handle the success and the way perhaps we would handle the success. He seems to see a danger in the success. Isn't that interesting? He reacts to all of this popularity as though it's dangerous to him and to his disciples. He sends them away very abruptly. Jesus senses spiritual danger. And so what does he do in verse 22? He made the disciples get into a boat. They didn't want to leave. They wanted to stay here. They said, hey, we could, we could, we could crown you king right now. The people would be behind it. We'd be behind it. This is great. You have all power. You can make unlimited food. We can last forever. We can beat any, any superpower in the world. Let's keep this thing going, Jesus. But Jesus senses danger where we all sense success. And so he makes his disciples get into the boat. That word there is very strong. It means force, to compel someone, to, to like put a prisoner in chains and put them on a boat in some ways it's used. Um, the disciples, once again, don't see the danger. But in John six fifteen, the parallel to this, we see what Jesus is thinking. It says this in John Jesus, knowing that they were going to to come and take him by force and make him king, withdrew. And he also caused his disciples to withdraw as well. Jesus knew these people are going to try to make me king, and I don't want to be king right now. And, and here's where you see one of those aspects of Jesus' character that we were talking about. This is where we see the unshifting purposes of Christ that are meant to give you assurance of salvation. Jesus isn't after a crown without a redeemed people. It is more important for Jesus to die than to just claim a crown. And that's assuring to us, right? And we see kind of a, a flickering, perhaps, here of that same old Matthew 4 temptation in Jesus, right? The devil saying, hey, all this I will give to you. I will give you this world and all of its glory. You just have to bow down and worship me. And the temptation is, hey, you can have the crown without the cross, but without the cross, Jesus won't have his people. And Jesus came to gather his people to create in them a new nation for um, for God's glory and to fulfill all God's promises. Here we see the unshifting purposes of Christ. Um, there's, a, there's a bit of an emphasis here that you maybe don't see, but I want to point out to you, um, it's really interesting. Jesus is never alone in all of Matthew's gospel until now. There, there's a sense of soberness and seriousness that, that, that now Matthew points out he sought to be alone. This was dangerous. This was dangerous for his disciples and perhaps even dangerous to him as well. He was once again being tempted by the devil. Once again, Jesus sees danger where you and I maybe see success. And I also want to show you another aspect of Jesus' character that we see here. We see the unceasing prayers of Jesus. Also, in Matthew, 
we don't see Jesus pray a lot. In Luke, we see him pray all the time. There's, there's kind of like these side comments about there's Jesus praying again. Nope. There's Jesus praying again. Hey, hey, Jesus, can you teach us to pray like you are praying? You're always praying. Like, that's what's going on in Luke. But in Matthew, Jesus is never praying. There's only two times that we see uh, Matthew record Jesus' praying. That's when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and right here, when he is in the mountain by himself with the disciples out at sea. Now, what is Matthew trying to show here? Is he trying to show us that um, Jesus never prays? No. But he is trying to say, in, in, in limited words, because Matthew is, 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 is very specific in the, the accounts he chooses to tell, tells us, he's saying, here is an important mark in Jesus' life. When everybody else thinks everything is at its height of success, Jesus sees that it's at its height of temptation, right? And so he needs to pray. Why? Perhaps because of the other reason, the other episode in Matthew's gospel that he needed to pray. Because temptation was working in him to not seek the Father's will, to do it his way, to get the cross or to get the crown without the cross. And so he spent an evening, a whole night in prayer, although we don't really know why he was praying. And actually, I think that's kind of beautiful. We don't know why he was praying. We do know reasons why Jesus prays. He, he prays to enjoy fellowship with his Father, right? He existed from eternity with his Father, enjoying perfect fellowship with him. And of course, he wants to continue to have fellowship with him. He, he prays to continue to seek the Father's will. We see that in Gethsemane when temptation is causing him to, to be tempted in other ways. He, he, he seeks to to, for, uh, to fix his eyes on the Father's will. He, we also see that he prays to fight against temptation. We see that in the other Gospels and at Gethsemane as well. But we also know that Jesus prays to intercede for his own, for us, right? And maybe this is perhaps why Jesus is praying here. Maybe Jesus is, is praying for all of these things. He's exulting in the Father's fellowship. He's, 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 He's fixing his, his eyes like flint on his mission to die on the cross. And he's also interceding for his disciples who are probably hopelessly confused and discouraged because Jesus has just sent them away on, on what seemed like the cusp of a great national movement to make him king. He is praying for his own, that they may not fail. We, we see where Jesus prays, and that's why we, we know how Jesus prays. We see him pray this way to the Father in John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer. We see Jesus talking about the way he prays when he talks to Peter in Luke 22. Remember, Peter's saying, hey, all of them I could see failing you, but I will never fail you. But then Jesus said, no, you're going to fail me. Matter of fact, Satan just asked me if he could sift you like wheat. And I prayed for you that you will not fall. But when you rise again, you're going to strengthen your brothers. Jesus prays for his disciples like that. That's a really encouraging thing. Or we could look at uh, one of the passages we looked at really early in these seri- this series. That was Hebrews 7.25, where it says this. He, that is Jesus, is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus has an unceasing character to his prayer, and that is tremendously good news for us. He is, he is, he is unchanging in his purposes, he is unshifting in his purposes, and he is unceasing in his prayers to bring about these purposes, both in himself and in his people, and that is blessed assurance to his people, is it not? And, and this is the point I just want to make, right? Even if you don't see him there, 
even if you don't see him presently, we, we know that this is what Jesus is doing for his own. He is interceding for them. He is saving them. He is bringing them all the way to heaven. He is praying for us. So you could say it this way. The believer may feel isolated. The believer may feel alone, but they are never alone. Jesus is praying for them continually. And even though we may feel low or discouraged, Jesus' purposes are unshifting, unchanging, unstoppable, as we saw in in the book of Acts, right? Jesus is always on purpose. He will pray for us in that purpose as well. And this is where we know the grace is coming. God's grace is coming to us through Christ's prayers for us to strengthen us in the Father's will. And that gives us great assurance. But let's move to the next scene really quick here. We had the, the abrupt isolation. Now let's move on to the stormy visitor. The stormy visitor. Creative titles, I know. But hey, this is what happens when you write titles at 1 in the morning. So there you go. Uh, verse 24. But the boat was already many stadia away from the land, being battered by the waves, for the wind was against them. Now, you see, if you cross reference to the other Gospels here that a a lot's going on. Jesus had sent them on their way back. They were on the eastern side. I'll do it this way. They were on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. If you are to look at a map of Israel, you'll see the Jordan River there. You'll see the Dead Sea at the bottom, and you'll see the Sea of Galilee at the top. And they're on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus is sending them back to to the western side. They're going westward now. They're going past or towards Bethsaida, they're going towards Capernaum, and they're going to eventually end up in verse 34 in Gennesaret. And it's striking here that Matthew says they are many stadia away, and that doesn't mean they are many stadiums away. It's just a measurement of, of length that the LSB is helpfully giving to you. Uh, John six nineteen says they are about three or four miles off land. Now, it helps you to understand that what the disciples would have been doing here is they wouldn't have probably crossed uh, right across the Sea of Galilee. That might have been maybe the shortest, but that would have been the most dangerous route, as I will explain in a minute. They would have kind of hugged the coastline for safety's sake because of the way the Sea of Galilee was. So even if, even if they were to cross straight across, the sea was only about... Uh, five miles across max where they were crossing right now. So this isn't saying they had had made it about three or four miles across the sea. This is probably saying they had made it three or four miles into the middle of the sea, right? They were going the wrong way. They were trying to cross this way and trying to hug close to the land, and and that caused them to turn down like this and and end up in the middle of the sea. Matter of fact, Mark, we see in Mark 6, um, 47, they are now in the midst of the sea. Uh, and Mark is even more dramatic in, in 648. They are straining at the oars. We see here in verse 24, they are battered by the wind, um, being battered by the waves, for the wind was against them. This is a strong word, battered by the waves. Uh, it means to torture, to torment, to punish. They were punished by the waves. And here's their situation, right? The harder they row, the worse their situation gets. Um, this should have only taken them a few hours, but it's taken them almost the entire night, maybe 12 hours, 10 to 12 hours to travel this far. They're, they're here till the fourth watch. That is the last watch of the night 
between three or six, probably six a.m. when they're when they're finally at this 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 final uh, stage of their voyage. They're fighting the wind the whole way. The wind is pushing them, and it's a dangerous storm. And if you know anything about the Sea of Galilee, you know that wind from the west is coming from the Mediterranean Sea, and that's particularly powerful sea. And then the the Sea of Galilee itself is so low, and it's surrounded by such high mountains that when the wind comes down, I'm not a meteorologist, but when high pressure and low pressure mix, it causes bad things to happen on the waves. And uh, storms can happen very suddenly, and they can be very scary. Once again, this is the reason why they would have been hugging the coast. But once again, the wind is pushing them from the coast into the middle of the sea. Do you see the dilemma? I mean, just feel their situation, right? The harder they row, the worse their situation gets. It's almost as if someone wants them in the middle of the lake. And they can do nothing about it. Matter of fact, it seems as though doom is grabbing their heart. Remember Psalm 107, right? They start going a little bit crazy when storms start taking the boat. You know the feeling of fear. When, when, when the more you try to do something, the worse your situation gets. Gloom and doom take over your heart, right? It's a bad illustration because you guys hate the movie. But Rise of Skywalker, when they're sinking into the uh, quicksand, the more they try to get out, the deeper they go. And that causes panic, fear, anxiety, worry. It causes you to start seeing and saying things that you normally wouldn't see or say. Maybe perhaps they had a memory of Jesus last time. Remember, they were actually in a boat with Jesus. In, in Matthew 8, they were in a boat with Jesus. He was actually so tired from all of his work that he had fallen asleep. And they're like, Master, Master, we're dying in a storm right here. How can you sleep in a storm like this? And they wake him up and he says, Peace, and the sea's calm. And maybe perhaps they had a thought of this. They're like, that was great because Jesus was there with us, but now he is not with us. And perhaps we can relate to that as well, right? I know Jesus can do that, and I know Jesus can do that, and I know Jesus can do this. But can Jesus help me now? Jesus is not here with me now. He doesn't feel very present with me now. This situation seems different than what Jesus is able to handle. But let's keep reading verse 25. And in the fourth watch of the night, that's probably near six in the morning, right before the sun rises, he came to them walking on the sea. Now when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. And now now let me explain this to you. The more you look at those verses, the more amazing they become. Uh, First, notice the fact that he is walking on the sea. I don't know if you've ever tried it. It doesn't work. I've tried it. I've tried jumping off skis and tried running on the water at high speed. Still doesn't work. Uh, Gravity pulls you down. You are not supposed to be able to stand on the sea. But he here is is, uh, holding back the laws of gravity and standing on the sea. And and notice also the, the phrase that he is walking on the sea. And then think about that. Jesus is in no trouble to hurry his way to the disciples' need. Doesn't that encourage you? Uh, Jesus is not anxious at all. 
to get to his disciples in their moment of panic. No anxieties hurry his feet. He walks. This would have taken him a while, right? Don't just, don't just assume Jesus kind of like, you know, force, I don't know what they do, force shift. I don't know, <laughs> when, you, when you just appear somewhere else. I don't think that's what's going on. I think Jesus actually watched, walked like four, three to four miles into the sea in the middle of a storm. He walked calmly, slowly. His anxieties were not existent. He is arriving intentionally at the moment he is choosing. He is never late, even though we feel him to be late. He is in complete control at this point. Here is an authorized uh, replay I can't wait to see one day. What did it look like for Jesus to walk across a stormy sea? Remember remember the, the Psalm 107, you know, the sea goes up. And it goes down. And, and sometimes I'm, I'm picturing Jesus. Did he, was he walking and just kind of going up and going down? Is that, is that how you guys see him? Is, is that how it worked? We're, we're not told. I, I'm kind of of the mind to suggest to you that that's probably not what was happening. I think what was happening was the sea was completely flat and completely calm wherever he was walking. And, and, I'll, and, I'll, and I'll explain it to you. I don't want you to just see the fact that he is walking on the sea. I want you to notice also how, how he is walking on the sea. When you think about the way in which Jesus is walking on the sea, you will say to yourself, hmm, that sounds familiar. Uh, Notice the language that uh, Matthew uses here draws on a lot of Old Testament scripture. For example, Psalm 77, 19 says this of God, your way was in the sea and your paths in the mighty waves. This is, of course, remembering his great works in the Egyptian escape. Often when the Bible speaks of God's saving grace in the Exodus, it's speaking about God walking across the sea. Or in Job 9, 8, um, this is declaring the all-powerful nature of God. Um, this is where handwriting uh, goes wrong. Oh, uh, who alone uh, stretches out the heavens and tramples down the waves of the sea. This is our God. He stretches out the heavens and he tramples down the sea. The word there, trample, refers to a general who has put his enemies under his feet. He tramples on the sea. He rules the waves. They are calm before him. Or we could look at Isaiah 43, 16. Once again, this is referring to a past deliverance like the Exodus to tell the exiled uh, Jewish people of a greater deliverance that's coming. Um, Isaiah 43 says this, Who makes a way through the sea and a path through the mighty waters. Or as we saw in, in Psalm 107.25, right? Jesus spoke, spoke the length and the height of this storm. He's in complete control all the time. And whenever we see the God of the Bible referred to in the Old Testament as walking across the sea, it's a reference to the Exodus. So that makes me think that the waters were flat before Jesus. Or notice also how he speaks, not just how he walks, but also how he speaks. He also sounds familiar. We see here in verse 27 that there are two commands that bracket or or go around one statement of self-identification. 
Uh, he says, take courage, basically uh, begin and don't stop to take courage, have a firmness about you, have a confidence about you, and then don't be afraid. Stop what you are presently doing right now. So have courage and stop being afraid. Why? Because of who I am right here in your midst. It is I. He wants them to know that it is him. Now, once again, we could turn over to, to Isaiah 43 and, and, and say, wow, this is the way God self-identifies himself. Again, um, God says this in Isaiah 43, which is right around that passage about walking on the sea. Uh, God says this, I, even I, am Yahweh, and there is no Savior besides me. It is I who have declared and saved and caused it to be heard. And there is no strange God among you. So you are my witnesses, declares Yahweh. I am God. Even from eternity, I am he. And there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act and who can reverse it, right? God sometimes works in powerful ways, in amazing ways, so that we will say, this is God and no other explanation. And for this reason, it also seems as though Jesus is intentionally using that phrase, it is I, which could be also translated I am, to, to kind of point back to his name that he gave Moses to bring to the Israelites in the Exodus, right? I am. That statement of self-determining existence, that statement of all power, that statement of complete um, omnipotence. I cause all things and all things and nothing causes me. I am without beginning or end. I, I, am, I am omnipresent. I am everywhere all the time. I am omniscient. I, I, am, I am omnipotent. Nothing is above me or beyond me. And, and perhaps this is why he walks and talks the way he does, right? He is pointing us back to Old text, uh, Testament pictures of our God who is in complete control in every situation. And that is why Jesus walks. So, so we see here also another character of Jesus, right? We see the unlimited power of Christ. There is nothing he cannot do. There is no place that is bigger than him. And this, of course, connects to his unshifting purposes because his, his power are always working to bring about his purposes. And this also connects to his unceasing prayers because his prayers for us are filled with the strength of this power. There is nothing greater than Jesus' power, and he prays with power for us. There, there's nothing more powerful And he, with his power, seeks our spiritual benefit. But notice also here, I want you to also notice the the unbreaking, unbending, unshifting patience of Jesus as well. He walks when you would be tempted to have him run. He walks into your trouble. He is not ever alarmed or trouble. Yes, you may see danger but he sees peace and he is at peace and he is peace whenever you are in danger. That's a wonderful thought. He is never alarmed. He is walking to his disciples and he is also right where he means to be as well. We get the sense that Jesus is not late. Jesus is allowing this storm to grip the hearts of his disciples so that they can see who they are and see who he is. And this is where we get to our our final or our our next kind of episode. I'll refer to this episode as the sinking faith. 
the sinking faith, and then after this we'll have to wrap it up. Let's, uh, let's look now at where we kind of fit into this. In, in Matthew 14, 28, uh, our side of this story kind of comes back with, with Peter here. And Peter answered and said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Now, Peter makes an assumption of truth, basically saying, Lord, it is you. I believe it is you. Lord, since it is you, Lord, if it is indeed you, and I believe it to be you, cause, uh, command me to come to you now on the water. Now, this is an interesting question to me. Why? Why did Peter need to do this? Was, was Peter needing to prove who Jesus was? I've thought about this uh, all week long, trying to figure out why Peter needed to go out of the boat to Jesus. And after thinking about it a long time, this is my best answer for why Peter needed to go out. Peter is making this request for the same reason Peter makes any stupid request. <laughs> Peter is about to, to have this slip-up and sinking example of faith for the same reason Peter always slips up. Because Peter loves Jesus. Peter wants to be with Jesus. That always gets Peter in trouble, doesn't it? Peter's love for Jesus, though, is, is an immature love. He is an imperfect disciple, as we talked about at Winter Retreat, right? And his love for Jesus, his desire to get to Jesus, sometimes gets him in trouble. And matter of fact, his imperfect, flawed faith is often weaker than his heart for Jesus is. It's a very interesting thing. And, and I get this from the, the, the basic point that, that Jesus allows and enables Peter to do this. Because look what he says in verse 29. And he said to him, come. And, and getting out of the boat, Peter walked on the water and came to Jesus. Jesus seems to see not the sinfulness of a request here, but a desire to get close and be close to Jesus. Now, here's a side little application, and I know what time it is, but I think this is really cool. Is it possible, is it possible that this is a prayer request and a life pursuit that the Lord Jesus Christ will always answer? Lord, I want to get close and stay close to you. I want to know you, and I want to be strong in following you. Can you help me get close and stay close to you? Is it possible, even when we are weak in that request, that that is a request that Jesus wants to make? Is it possible that that is what Jesus will enable you to do? Now, it will be full of flaws, and you'll see your weaknesses all throughout it. But Jesus wants his disciples to get close and stay close to him, and he is eager to enable and allow them to come to him. Make that your New Year's resolution, right? Lord, this new year, I want to get closer to you than ever before, to the point where I stay close to you like never before, where, where, where sins in my life are weakened and where qualities and virtues are strengthened, and all because I am close to you and I love you and my eyes are on you. But you should be warned in this New Year resolution, right? You will do it imperfectly. We see Peter definitely does it imperfectly. Verse 30, seeing the wind, he became frightened and beginning to sink. He cried out saying, Lord, save me. And notice here, the, the simple lesson is here. We fail in life. We fail spiritually when our situation, our troubles are bigger than the Jesus that we are with. That's when we fail. That's when our faith is weak indeed. Verse 31. 
And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him. And he said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? This is a strange verse of comfort to me. It's a strange verse of comfort to me. Why? Well, because little faith. Jesus knows we have little faith. Jesus calls disciples with little faith, and he wants disciples with little faith to come to him and see their weakness so that they can see his strength and therefore be stronger in faith in him. But notice here also a characteristic of Jesus. Notice his his unbending patience. He calls you when you have little faith, and he keeps you safe. He grabs you by the hand. And of course, this leads to our final scene. It's an inescapable conclusion, verse 31, all the way through 34. Um, And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand, took hold of him, and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind stopped, and those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are truly God's Son. This is the inescapable conclusion that Jesus wants his disciples to have. You are God's Son. That's a, a quality qualitative statement about him. You are not like us. You are of God's nature and not like ours. Notice again the the rich language here, the Old Testament descriptions, right? God in the Old Testament grabs his people who are sinking in the sea and pulls them up. Psalm 144, 7 says this, Send forth your hand from on high, set me free and deliver me out of the many waters. This is what God does. He grabs us by the hand. And here we are. Do you you see how these all connect, right? Um, The unlimited power of Christ will pull you up when you fail. But it will only pull you up when you cry out. The unshifting purposes of Christ will always be present to deliver you and cause you to endure. The unbending patience of Christ will never lose his grip over his own that he has chosen to save. And the unceasing prayer of Christ, even when you don't see him, is always present. And maybe we could add one more characteristic, and this is really the emphasis of this entire passage, and we see the inescapable presence of Christ. And this is what Jesus wants his disciples to learn. This is what Jesus is training them to live in this world and be bold witnesses when he is gone. That they know that he is still present and still doing his work. Notice the the climax of the story is not when he calms the sea. That's kind of like, oh, that also happened. The climax is when he gets into the boat and they are worshiping him. You are constantly with us, therefore we do not have to be afraid. Remember how Matthew's gospel begins. His name will be called Emmanuel, God with us. That is what it means to be Jesus' disciple. It means Jesus is with you. And remember how Matthew's gospel ends. Jesus says this in Matthew 28, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to to keep all that I command you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is what you need to be trained in. He has all power. He does everything he determines to do. Nothing, nothing is frightening him or causing him to worry in your life. He will hold you even when you feel weak. This is the assurance that the disciple has in their Lord. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, thank you for this morning's 
a message from Matthew 14. Thank you for the preciousness of the picture of Jesus and help our faith to be strengthened even through it. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.